Good morning. Uh, for those who don't know me or if you're new here, I'm Colton. I'm our pastor student ministries here, and it's just a delight to get to share the word with you. So as we start, why don't we just open in prayer? God, thank you for this time that we can have together. And God, I just pray that your spirit would speak to us. God, that you would expose our hearts uh, open to you, God, that you might reorient our hearts' desires to love you and to want you. We pray this in your name. Amen. In Greek philosopher Plato's The Republic, he tells a story about a group of people who are from birth stuck in this cave. Uh, these are people who have, they see nothing but the shadows flickering from a fire behind them. Everything they know, their whole existence is just this cave. They're shackled. They're prisoners. They don't know that there's a sun outside of the cave, that there's light flickering behind them. They didn't know that there's anything else, nothing that's stretched beyond this cave. As Plato kind of tells the story, the reader is forced to consider what would happen if someone were to make it out of the cave and see the blinding light of the world above, or if someone who saw that light then came back into a dark cave after having their eyes adjusted to try and help lead others out. You know, with all of our connection and the vast information that we can get on Google and the available news information on social media and all the connectedness we have, I think our society is still very much in a cave. Not necessarily an educational cave, though, where we lack information, but another kind of cave. That cave is our hearts. Now, of course, if we're going to talk about the hearts today, we, we need to define what a heart is. There are a lot of different ways people viewed the heart uh, in, our, in our world from ancient times until now. Uh, if you were asked, what is a heart? Uh, some of us might say, the heart is the seat of the emotions. It's been defined like that before. And so like ancient Greeks, we might see it necessary to kind of overcome our unruly bodily passions by reason and will. Many in our culture today, what, what uh, philosopher Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity, believe that we're supposed to find our deepest self and express it. And so that feelings are actually the truest part of our identity and are more important than reason. And see, the issue for our world today and the world in the past is that we have had this fragmented view of what the heart really is and have had a hard time integrating the way we feel with how we think. The Bible, however, gives a much more holistic view of the heart. You can actually bring those things together. One theologian says this, the heart is not just the seat of the emotions. It is the seat of the mind, will, and emotions. It's not just emotions. It thinks, it trusts, it feels, and acts. See, we act out of our heart's inclinations. For where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will be also. The best definition I've heard then here is from Tim Keller, and he says, the heart is the seat of your deepest commitments what you most love, adore, and are concerned about. See, for God's people, Israel, uh, those who were originally chosen by God to be a blessing to the world, they would recite every day, morning and night, these words from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And the Lord there is referring to a personal God who has a name, Yahweh. 
not just any God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Now, the Hebrews, they didn't have a word for brain. Uh, They saw that all of the kind of intellectual decisions you make, they would say came from the heart. The heart is where you know, you understand, you make connections. And in Proverbs, wisdom dwells within the heart, and your heart is what you use to discern truth and error. So the heart is where you think, it's physical, but it's also where you make choices motivated by your desires. I really like how Tim Mackey addresses that that's what that is. It's choices that are motivated by your desires. See, everything we do flows from our hearts. And it's so key because our heart governs our actions and will. It doesn't just govern our feelings. But there's a problem. The Bible says that our starting place for our hearts, the default of our world is basically the darkness of a cave. We all have broken hearts. And the Bible addresses that. And, and, and my point over these next few moments isn't just to make us feel bad. Uh, but as I've wrestled through this sermon myself, there were points that as I reflected on my own heart, uh, that I felt a deep conviction and sadness for kind of where my heart was with where I knew God wanted it to be. And so God is talking to us through these scriptures. See, our hearts, to our core, are deeply marred by sin. It's not just what we do on the outside that's sinful. Sin actually goes to the core of our being. It does at least three things to us. One, it impairs our vision. We don't see clearly. Two, it distorts our hungers. And three, it makes us ill. It's like an illness that all of us have. Barry D. Jones writes this. When sin enters the story, shalom meaning peace with God, a relationship and communion with God, is vandalized. God's glorious intention for his good creation is subverted. The wholeness and harmony we were created to enjoy with God, with each other, with creation, and with ourselves is fundamentally violated. Our vision is impaired of who we are and who God is. Every part of us is touched by sin. There is no part of us that is not in some way impacted by sin. Our bodies, our minds, our wants and desires, all corrupted by the decaying disease that is sin. And the church, in many respects, is like a hospital where the broken and sick can find healing under a great physician. That's Jesus. But this also means that sin is not something that just goes away when you come to truly know Jesus. It's still like someone who's recovering from an illness, who is receiving care by God's grace, but is not yet fully healed. We're on the way to recovery, but none of us have arrived yet. See, out of our hearts, many longings and desires come. And we have this major problem because hardly any of them are for the right thing. In Mark 7, 21 to 23, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person, he says. Well, wait a minute, you might say. I don't do those things. I haven't committed adultery. I'm not really that greedy or malicious. How can you say then that I'm evil or my thoughts are evil? And so as we come to to the, the word of God, 
we are not comparing ourselves to one another here. We're not creating the standard for what is good. God can, because he made us and he knows what is best. The Bible's clear that he, he is the standard. One man came up to a pastor after he was preaching, and he asked the same question. He says, you know, I haven't done those sins. How can you say that I'm evil, that I'm that messed up? And the pastor responded, and I think this is a good question for us to direct at ourselves. He said, if we took all your thoughts from when you were little, a little one until now, we put them together and made this video, and we showed this video up here on the projector. What would we see? Probably things that would make you want to leave this room in utter shame and probably never want to show yourself here again. I know I would. And it wouldn't help that everyone else in this room is in the same position. Every one of us has the same issue. That even before sinful people, we would be seen as sinful. That wouldn't shock us, and yet we would feel so guilty of violating our own standards. And God, a holy and perfect God, he sees the thoughts and intents of your heart. He sees what that projector would show every day. And he made you. He longs to be with you. It would be worse than your mom or your most loved one seeing all that you've done. We are all guilty. What I find interesting is that our age often says, you know, follow your heart. But the Bible says no. Actually, our hearts are deceitful. They're misleading. And Pastor Dave says, you know, knowing that when we're being misled by our wants is more difficult to judge than we think. Even those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ are just not free to just follow their hearts. We need God's word to, to inform us and to walk by his spirit. That often means doing battle with the impulses of our hearts and our selfish desires. And yet we stand before a God who knows the secrets of our hearts. Everything's open before him. And unlike the people around us, he doesn't look at our outward appearance. He can look right into our heart. He judges the thoughts and intents of our heart. And so before we can ever just say, you know, just follow your heart on this issue. We need a radical transformation of our hearts. Because what if our hearts are following something that will lead us to our destruction, to our downfall? See, our condition is that we have turned aside and we have put something else in God's rightful place. Paul writes in Romans that all have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good? Well, yeah, we are fundamentally stained by sin, vandalized. As a famous theologian, Jonathan Edwards said, he says, if God's grace were to let go of us, we in our sin would essentially plunge into hell, which is a final destiny, separated from God and his beautiful grace. And all of us right now, we, none of, we have God's grace holding and sustaining this world. He says, in all of our good work as we plunge, all the good things we have done would have no more influence to keep us out of hell than a spider web could to stop a falling rock. There's not even a bounce. That's how much in need of a doctor we are. How much in need we are of something to come and bring light into the cave of our hearts. And so where does this leave us? Whether you trust in Jesus as your king or not, 
uh, we're going to take a look in a moment now at some questions that will kind of allow us to do a heart check. Um, and then we'll talk about the, the good news of Jesus. So uh, first the heart check and then the medicine. What is your functional God? Dr. David Powlison, a counselor and author, writes these questions that he calls x-ray questions. They're honest, self-reflective questions that can help us navigate our, emotion, our, our motivations. Um, kind of getting at what or who actually controls our particular actions, our thoughts, our emotions, our attitudes. And the answers to this question, he would call, are, we can call, are functional gods. And so often, our functional gods stand opposed to our professed god. So here's what Pallison says. He says, sometimes as Christians, we profess that God controls all things and works everything to his glory and our ultimate well-being. We profess God as our rock and refuge, a very present help in times of trouble. We profess to worship him, trust him, love him, obey him. But some moments of anxiety, an hour, a day, a season, we live as if we need to control things. We live as if something, money, someone's approval, a grade on an exam, good health, health, avoiding conflict, getting our way, matters more than loving and trusting God. We live as if a temporary good feeling could provide us refuge. He says our functional God competes with our professed God. And that's because what motivates us is our will and our desires. And that really affects how we interact with technology. And so I want to take some time this morning to answer some of these questions and to think deeply about what it is that acts as our functional God or gods. Don't just fill in the blank of your sermon notes with Jesus, God, and love. Like, take a moment to really think about what your life might say as an answer. Maybe it is Jesus, but even for those who follow Jesus, there are things that compete with, that seek to usurp God's seat in our hearts. So the first question I want to ask is this. When you're pressured, where do you turn? What do you think about? What are your escapes or characteristic fantasies? You know, when I'm pressured, I often try to distract myself with something that I can enjoy. And our patterns of behavior can kind of depend on the situation. But any given situation, Pallison says, can hold up a mirror to the heart's motives. So what is it that rules your heart? What is it that you're really looking for when you're going online? Where is your heart taking you? What motivations and desires move you? For many of us, the answers to that question really answer this bigger question. What are you seeking in life? There was a time in my life where I remember I I felt so lonely. And there was this show, some of you might remember it, it was called Duck Dynasty. I used to love to turn on that show, to watch it as these family members were together, they were laughing, they just turned the mundane into something beautiful because they were with one another. It was so funny, you know, shooting snakes, catching frogs. I just loved the community of this redneck family from Monroe, Louisiana. And I would turn on that show and I'd watch it, and at the end of the show they would gather together and they'd pray together, and then it was done. And I still felt lonely. If I was looking for fulfillment in that, I would put on another episode. It never actually fulfilled, though. And a lot of us can consume media, social media and other forms of technology, in an attempt to fulfill our longings or to satisfy our hungers. You know, pornography, it promises pleasure without intimacy. 
It can't satisfy those longings, ultimately. Augustine of Hippo, he once said that every man who enters a brothel goes in looking for God. I think what he's really saying here is that the hunger of our hearts, what we really need, is God, not these other things. We have many hungers. And and so a question is, what are your characteristic hungers? What do you hunger for? Is it truth? Is it love? Is it knowledge? Is it belonging? To express yourself for justice? For significance? Rabbi Zacharias, a popular Christian teacher, he points out the amazing significance of what Jesus says when he says in John 6, I am the bread of life. That Jesus is ultimately saying that no one thing will meet all of those hungers you have except him. Not only do we remain unfulfilled when we pursue these hungers, Zacharias writes, but in their very pursuit comes a disorientation that misrepresents and misunderstands where the real satisfaction comes from. When the pressure is on, do you turn to a comfort food to satisfy or numb your hunger? Where do you turn to for real nourishment? Here's our second question. Where do you bank your hopes? What do you think will fulfill you in the future? Or to put another way, on your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile? I ask myself this question actually quite often. I think it actually governs how I use technology. Uh, most of what I spend my time online for even at home after a long day, is to gather knowledge, to gain wisdom, or to learn something new that I'm interested in or I really want to be proficient in. That means a lot of times for me studying things about the Bible. And see, I have these mixed motives. I love Christ and others on the one hand, and yet the love of success and human approval and being seen as wise is on the other hand. And there's this war going on inside my heart. I can often spend so much time reading and looking up stuff to the neglect of my own time with God or with my family. And even though what I'm doing might be helpful, the way I can make it such an ultimate thing in my life because of my heart's issues is wrong. It's sinful. And so when I ask myself, you know, why am I really searching this stuff up right now? (laughs) Or what am I really looking for? Why am I working so hard on this sermon right now? I can begin to expose what my functional God is and draw near with that self-awareness to the God who loves me. Uh, This sermon may be forgotten years from now, but the depth of my relationship with Christ and all that time together, that will last. And so I can rest when I'm at home. I can shut off the computer and the distraction. But only when I place where I bank my hopes, only when the place where I bank my hopes has changed from my performance or pleasure to God. Allison says, people energetically sacrifice to attain what they hope for. So what is it? He says, people in despair have had hopes dashed. What were those shattered hopes? You know, what we search for online, maybe it's recreational fun or, you know, the latest new hunting gear or apparel. Maybe it's sinful pleasures. Maybe it's knowledge. Maybe it's not even stuff online at all. Maybe there's something else that we totally spend all our time on. But God's words tells us to not put our hope in wealth or fill in the blank, which is so uncertain, but to put our hope in God who richly provides. It's not that you can't enjoy what you have. It's where your hope is. What gives your life meaning? 
that impacts uh, how I make wise decisions online when I, when I know what, what, what not only what I profess does, but what functionally does. And so I want to point out a little card in your bulletins um, that has 10 S's on it, S questions. Um, Test for making wise decisions. Uh, the first seven are from June Hunt, and the last three I added. But each question asks basically uh, what you're seeking when you're in a certain situation, where your hope lies when you're making any kind of decision. Uh, turn, turn your attention to the spiritual test. It's the fourth one down. It asks the questions, are you being people pressured? Or more accurately, desire pressured? Or spirit led? So often it's out of desire that we make decisions. But, but is that desire saying God is the strength of my heart and what I long for? Or something else, fill in the blank, is governing the decision for me to, re- to search this up or to reply to this person in this way? Or when you're looking at something online or you're writing to someone, whose servant are you? Look at the servant test. Will this reflect Christ's love and holiness in my relationship to him above all? Or is there something else that seems to be more important here in this situation? Here's my last question from Pallison for today. Though there are so many other questions we could ask of our hearts, and I've included some more in our handout. Uh, How do you implicitly say, if only, you know, to get what you want, to avoid what you don't want, to keep what you have. I think this question can expose our hearts and uncover our motivations. I've talked to many people, and Dave talked about it last week, how easily Instagram and Facebook can create comparison anxiety, where we see what others have and we think, if only, and how that kind of hurt how we view ourselves and how we view the world. Remember, our hearts are in a cave, and in many ways, we view things as though looking at a dim flickering of light. And, and so when we look on others, it's so easy to compare our lives to theirs, even though we really don't see the full picture. To want to say, if only. It happens so much, I wonder that if Instagram should change its name to if only Graham. Because there are real longings in our hearts, and we often think the if onlys can fulfill. And when they don't, as Proverbs says, it makes our hearts sick. A recent Barna Group study concluded that Gen Z, so after millennials, is the most connected generation, but that despite being hyper-connected and globally minded, many young adults feel very lonely. We found that we live in this age where there's a lot of anxiety, and that worry and insecurity are like some of the most prominent traits of this generation. See, the hungers of our hearts simply won't find fulfillment on social media platforms, or even in many of the possessions and experiences that the social media influencers with the most followers have. When we look at our hearts and our use of technology, I would say we're largely governed by longings and desires that try to dethrone, maybe it's not even noticeable, but try to dethrone God. The device in and of itself is not the problem, but something about the way we use it and the feelings that we allow it to generate in us those things are governed by longings that oftentimes interrupt and compete with what's, with what's best for us, with being about God's will for our life, finding satisfaction in him and spending time with him too. One writer recently wrote an article and, and said this, alcohol won't lay down its life for us, but it can demand we lay down our lives for it. I think you can fill in the word alcohol uh, with almost any other thing that you've made uh, 
the most important thing to you. Maybe it's your social media followers. They can demand you do things in a sense to get likes or comments, but they won't lay down their lives for you. It's a fragile community. Maybe it's the new wonderful car or newest product or apparel that you've apparel, sorry, that you've spent a lot of your time looking up and dreaming about. You know, it can take up your thoughts, your money, your time, but it won't lay down its life for you. Even a good show, a movie, a sports team. There is only one who can perfectly fulfill, who, yes, calls you to lay down his life for him, for his sake, but will fulfill and will and did lay down his life for you. And that is Jesus. Our sin-sick hearts can find glorious salvation and fulfillment in Jesus Christ alone. And so if you're in Christ, though once you were a hopelessly sin-sick sinner, you've been given a new heart. It's with your heart that you believed and were saved. And not only that, but the very fact that you've come before God with a contrite heart, so mournful for your sin and trusting in him. He says this, he says, I live in a high and holy place, God writes in his word, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He's making you new. And if you do not follow Christ, yet there is good news. You can come before God, mournful for your sin, asking forgiveness, and he can actually change your will and desires. Palson writes that though God never promises to give you what you want to meet your felt needs and longings, he makes it possible for your heart to be ruled by other different desires, to actually change what you really want. So you can turn from following your own way and place your trust in God and follow him in his way. You know, there's something else really amazing here. Uh, not only does God cure our sin-sick hearts, he doesn't just kind of fix us up, patch us up, and then, Send us on our way. He says this, I will give them a heart to know me. Jeremiah, for I am the Lord and they will be my people and I will be their God for they will return to me with their whole heart. Even with all of our sinfulness, God actually wants us to know him. He gives us himself. He is the bread of life, the only thing that can satisfy and fulfill our hunger. He is the true light that can shine into the dark cave of our hearts. And I ran into Pastor Harry uh, late last week, and he talked with me about how as he was reading, he was just amazed to see that all of the wonderful thing God does for us in Christ Jesus, it wasn't just to bring us relief from the guilt of our sin, or just to make us justified, be, be seen right in God's eyes, just to be legally acceptable to God. Now, it's no good if it doesn't open up a way to connect with God. Uh, Pastor John Piper writes this, Many people seem to embrace the good news without embracing God. There's no sure evidence that we have a new heart just because we want to escape hell. You know, that's perfectly an, a perfectly natural desire, not a supernatural one. It doesn't take a new heart to want the psychological relief of forgiveness or the inheritance of God's world. All these things are understandable without any spiritual change. But the evidence that we have been changed is that we want these things because they bring us to the enjoyment of God. And he says, this is the greatest thing Christ died for. In 1 Peter 3, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, the shalom that was vandalized 
is restored in Christ Jesus. We're actually reconciled to God. God can bring true light into the cave of our sinful hearts so that we can actually see the beauty of Jesus Christ. You know how beautiful it is. How beautiful Jesus is when we know how much we've been forgiven. We've been forgiven and loved so much, even in our sin. The prophet Ezekiel foretold at this time, many years before Jesus came, he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my love. See, that's the amazing thing. You will be able to follow Jesus. You will have God's spirit living in you when you put your trust in him. And you'll have full access the presence of God. You don't need to buy a subscription or type in your religious login and password. You don't need to scroll down and, you know, look for, or, or, or you have 24-7 access to God, purchased by God himself on our behalf. It's not going to run out. We don't have to use Wi-Fi or go to a priest to connect. You can know and have a relationship with God. So put away your phone and walk with them. If you're a follower of Jesus here today and a lot of these questions you feel maybe exposed your own hearts or your propensity to turn towards things other than God, to functional gods, there's good news if you have faith in Jesus. You've been set free from the power of sin. You're no longer a slave, no longer shackled in your own cave. Now, if you haven't committed your life or made your deepest commitment uh, be that of Jesus Christ here today, I pray that the hound of heaven, that God's Holy Spirit, would chase you down today so that you might know that everything other than Jesus Christ will not save you from your brokenness. It will not fulfill you. And that there is one who's calling to you right now to turn to him, to place your trust in him. You are actually invited to a journey, online and offline, during this life and the life to come, with the Most High God who created you and loves you. So will you follow him? Let's close in prayer as the worship team comes. God, thank you for your word. And we just pray that you'd continue to convict our hearts. God, move in us to love you and to make our professed God our functional one as well. God, that we might long for you, hunger and thirst for you and you alone. We pray this in your name. Amen.